Hi, everybody. Welcome to another PR Masters podcast, where you get to hear the stories and wisdom of our industry's most successful leaders and legends. And I'm Art Stevens, your host, and I'm pleased to report that today's guest is number 78, and he certainly fits the category of a PR master. And he is Paul Dyer, who is CEO of Lippy Taylor. And Lippy Taylor was voted as PR Week's most outstanding midsize agency for 2021 and 2022. Congratulations, Paul. Paul entered the PR industry as one of the earliest people to make social media marketing his full-time job. He then joined W2O Group, now called Real Chemistry, where he built the agency's analytics and integrated media capabilities. He's credited as one of the small number of people who drove the company's growth from 18 million to 122 million in just eight years. And I suspect he'll be doing the same thing with Lippy Taylor. He then joined Lippy Taylor as president in 2017 and became CEO in 2020. At Lippy Taylor, Paul architected an overhaul of the agency's creative, analytics, and digital capabilities, evolving them to be fully integrated while maintaining the integrity of the firm's iconic reputation and excellence in earned media. And under Paul's supervision and leadership, the agency has grown fivefold while producing some of the most awarded campaigns in the industry. And Paul continues to be a counselor to senior executives at many Fortune 500 companies while spending much of his time focused on developing the agency's capabilities and culture. Paul, I'd like to welcome you very much to PR Masters, and how are you today? I'm doing well, Art, and thanks for having me. It's certainly an honor um, to be here with you as well as in the, the company of the many guests you've had, you know, uh, number one through 77. Um, I do have to say it's a little uncomfortable to sit and listen to your own bio be read in that way, um, but um, thank you um, for the introduction. <laughs> well, you earned it, my friend. You earned it. <laughs> you definitely did it. And given that, you know, Paul, you know, your agency, which I'm familiar with, I obviously know Maureen very well over the years, but uh, Lippy Taylor has been one of the hottest tickets in town since you became CEO. Its revenues have increased dramatically, and the range of services you now offer covers a much wider bandwidth. Paul, how did you do it? Um, well, first of all, thank you for saying so. Um, really, you know, I appreciate the kind words. Um, and as you know, Art, it's never one person that does these things. Um, so it's always, you know, it's been a partnership with Maureen as well as the rest of our leadership team, um, some who were here when I arrived, some who have joined since then, some who have come and gone, and everybody, you know, plays a part in sort of these dynamic and, you know, growing organizations. Um, I will say that, you know, there was a clear plan. We established a clear vision from the very beginning. Um, and when you look back today, um, six, you know, six and a half years back, um, it feels like it was a dramatic transformation, but in the interim, each step felt really natural and organic and sort of incremental. So it really, there was never that sort of knee jerk, you know, we're going to stop being that and become this, you know, or, or it's been very organic over time. Um, I, just, I guess, you know, I said that you started with a clear vision and the vision was, there was maybe two really important components to that. Um, you know, the first was 
what kind of agency we were going to be. And we established very early on this idea of the first earned marketing agency, um, which there's a lot to unpack under that, but it's really the idea that in what has historically been an advertising-led marketing landscape, um, even as PR firms take on more and more responsibilities, um, the vast majority of major companies still lead their marketing plans from the advertising first lens. And we believe that that needs to stop for many, many reasons, and that it's actually bad for society for that to continue. And that it, you know, we, we bring the capabilities to our clients to instead lead the marketing plan from an earned first perspective uh, with advertising to support. Um, and that was a vision we established very early on. And then sort of how we were going to get there, which included things like digital transformation, not just of new capabilities, but bringing along current staff and those kinds of things. Um, and then something that I, that I am proud of and, and that I did bring to the organization is this, um, it's an idea of, of how you progressively share decision-making and authority over time as you grow the company. Um, and I liken this approach to systems of government where if you look at independent firms, they almost always begin as a monarchy because you've got a founder, you know, mm -hmm. and that founder typically controls all the decisions. They have all the client relationships. They sign off on every plan, um, and it becomes you know, like a, a king or queen. Um, and there is a cap. There is a ceiling to how much growth that company can achieve with a monarch. And to get to the next phase, which is really sort of the phase that Maureen and I partnered on in the very beginning, was moving from what was essentially a monarchy into the feudal era, which is now you've got a system of sort of lords and ladies, right? And that's your leadership team, and they all have areas of responsibility, and you start to progressively share more authority and decision-making with them. And then you move from feudal into what I call the revolution, which is you actually um, sort of disband the system of lords and ladies and instead put all of the authority and decision-making into the middle of the company, the people who are closest to clients. And the senior people, instead of reviewing and approving and making decisions, their entire job now is to just kind of roam around the company and be helpful and just go help the people who are making the decisions. Um, and that kind of powers your growth through the next, call it, you know, probably from 50 to 100 million. And at that point, it gets untenable to have the authority be that distributed and you move to a federal, you know, federalism because you've got a strong central government, state governments, local governments, right, and uh, sort of reorganize everything. So anyway, so, so we've been communicating that to the entire company for years now and like where we are in the process as we do it. And I think that that sort of early and often communication has also been really helpful. Well, that's fascinating. You know, you obviously played an integral part, Paul, in the growth of uh, of real chemistry, I guess, under Jim Weiss, uh, who, by the way, was an intern at my public relations firm some time ago. <laughs> and, and, of course, Bob Pearson over there. What did you learn there? Uh, obviously, you played an integral part in their growth, and obviously you learned a lot as you went along. Obviously, you had the innate talent and capability, but obviously that company grew quite a bit. What did you learn there that you were able to bring to Lippy Taylor? Yeah, I mean, a lot, obviously. It was a pretty formative experience for me. I think I started there when I was 25 years old um, and left, wow. and I was in the C-suite, you know. Um, and 
the other name I would add to your list there, of course, is Jen Gottlieb. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think, you know, Jim, even after we sold the company in 2016, you know, and shortly after he, he said sort of it was Bob, Jen, and Paul were the three. And the thing, I, the reason I'm pointing that out is because I learned a lot of things from each of them, and they were very different things. Um, some of them, I would say, are what to do. Some are what not to do, which is always the case. There's learnings in both. Um, I had the good fortune, I think, of being in the room with them all. Um, and I was sort of like the only one that got invited into each of their rooms. They, they otherwise were sort of divided many times and sort of dividing and conquering. And I was kind of the only person that would end up in all of Bob's meetings and in all of Jen's meetings. And, and being in the room itself was incredibly valuable, uh, just sort of, you know, sponging off of how they comport themselves and, you know, how they manage meetings and teams and, you know, things like that. Um, but then, you know, outside of that group of, you know, three or four people, you know, remember the leadership team there had, call it seven or eight at any given time, and the other three or four seats were, I mean, frankly, a revolving door. And so we probably had 35 other people who sat in those seats over the next, over that seven and a half years, which was also incredibly valuable from a learning perspective. For you know, 18 months, there'd be this unbelievable leader who'd come in from a different agency, and I'd be able to learn a lot working really closely with that person. And then that person would leave, and another person would come in, and I'd be learning a completely different thing. So you know, the, the, the sort of combination of some consistency with that turnover was really valuable you know, for me from a learning perspective at that point in my career. Um, and then I also just think it was an interesting point in the evolution of the industry where um, – PR had kind of become a dirty word for a while. I don't know if you remember it the same way, but, you know, if, if you had gone back and looked at every major PR firm's website, you know, around the, the mid-2010s, nobody used the word PR, right? They had all suddenly become marketing communications or, you know, some other version of it because PR was seen as outdated or, you know, whatever. Um, and it was like the PR firms were all trying to figure out digital data integration with creative and marketing services. Um, and I will say that at Real Chemistry, we, we were able to really experiment a lot. Um, and Jim had a high tolerance for, for things not working. Um, you know, so we were able to experiment a lot. Um, and I think in the process did really figure out earlier than a lot of other firms how you integrated those things. Um, and of course, now we've seen a complete revi you know, revitalization of PR at, in the vernacular and as a concept and everybody's a PR firm again. And like everybody has some version of like, we earn it as their like slogan, which was Lippy Taylor's slogan forever. You know, it's like earned media and PR are like back, you know, um, but they now encompass all of those things that we were experimenting with and figuring out how to integrate and all that. Um, so I do think that just being in, in a place that was willing to experiment at a time when the industry at large was trying to figure itself out was also just an incredible hands-on learning experience. You know, as I recall, you know, Bob Pearson kind of spearheaded the whole concept of analytics which, uh, from what I understand, you know, got real chemistry uh, into the door of a lot of major companies. Uh, is this something you were involved with? And if so, is this something you have brought to Lippy Taylor? 
Yeah. Um, yeah for, for us, it, when it was the real chemistry days, analytics was really born out of social media. Um, you know, we had this early insight that there was as much or more value in using analytics and social media to understand what motivated people, um, you know, as, a, as opposed to just marketing to them. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you go back to all the, the earliest models, and I literally developed the first models in Excel on my laptop. Um, and then, of course, we would bring in people that were true software developers, data scientists, et cetera, and they would sort of professionalize them. Um, and I think by the time I left, I was the president of analytics, and um, well, we had 100 people in the group at that point. And I mean, I had hired sort of employee one through 100. But in the interim, there were some periods where you know, we would hire somebody else to take over. We brought in Tim Markline at one point to run it. Um, you know, but then it, it always kind of seemed to come back to me um, in some way or another. Um, so, I mean, there was there were several years where I would say um, not 100 percent, but the majority of my job was in um, developing analytics products, working with clients to interpret the data they were getting out of those products um, and then sort of um, structuring and developing the analytics team and capability there. Um, one thing I would say that you know, I learned that then brought with me here to Lippy Taylor is I think that we, um, we over productized there and it was, um, obviously in pursuit of creating scalable offerings with scalable passive revenue streams for the, for the agency. Um, but what it led to was a lot of clients that were being sold something they didn't need. And, um, you know, it becomes, it kind of became this idea of, um, I think Bain and company um, quoted this, but of, of bad profits, you know, where you're making really good money, but the overall um, sort of unseen um, negative externality of it is that the client is starting to resent the fact that you sold them this thing. Um, so, you know, so, so my learning from that was that I believe agencies should have you know, agencies in particular should have analytics capabilities, but not analytics products. And, um, you know, so that's what I've sort of internalized and, and built with the team here at Lippy Taylor, along with David Richardson, our, our chief digital officer, Gita Patel, who's our head of analytics. Um, and we've got a team of probably 15 people under Gita doing data science and advanced um, sort of quantitative analytics. Um, where we have extraordinary capabilities, special software, tools, apps, things that we've built. We've got modeling capabilities. We've got statistical capabilities. Um, you know, we're using AI in a pretty advanced way, whether that's for computer vision modeling or you know, large language models, et cetera. Um, but we're not over-productizing it. We're using it to answer specific questions, to build better briefs, you know, to help clients um, kind of get unstuck you know, when they, when they feel like, hey, we're just not resonating with this audience, you know, those kinds of things. So at one point, Paul, you know, obviously when Lippy Taylor was a monarchy, <laughs> if you will, uh, <laughs> and it's, now, it's now a feudal society, but it was well known because of, you know, Maureen Lippy's background as a magazine editor, and it was known as a firm that, that uh, worked with essentially, you know, women's products and services. And you came in, and obviously you widened the bandwidth. 
What industries do you now serve in addition to uh, exactly, you know, what the pioneer categories when Maureen headed the firm? Yeah, I mean, so what I would say is, um, yes, there's been a lot of change from the state of the firm when I arrived, but it's not necessarily different from what Maureen had envisioned for her company in the beginning. Um, so when I arrived, it was heavy uh, beauty, you know, traditional beauty products like color cosmetics right, yeah. and, you know, hair, hair care and things like that, um, as well as some dermatology. Um, and, um, but, you know, Maureen's kind of, even her background, when she was an editor, she was the first editor at a national magazine to have the title of both beauty and health in one person. Um, you know, she always was, was big on health. And so, I mean, look, a number of things sort of contributed to our, our quick decision that we needed to change focus. Um, first was the beauty industry was atomizing. You had um, all of the influencers starting their own brands and celebrity brands, et cetera. So all the big companies were kind of on the ropes. You know, they were kind of getting their teeth kicked in by the hundreds of little brands that were starting in the beauty industry. So they weren't really able to be great clients, you know, kind of investing in strategic marketing initiatives and those kinds of things. They were more like trying to keep the lights on. Um, so it wasn't a great industry. Um, and then, you know, I also, in talking with Maureen, I mean, this is one of the things that I've always viewed is I want to work with clients that have complex stories to tell. You know, I don't, I don't really want to just work with a client whose story is there's a new shade of lipstick available because that's not a very complicated story. <laughs> Um, but when you look in dermatology, it usually is very complicated. You know, there's, there's a, an origin story, there's an ingredient story, there's a how it was made, there might be an FDA story, there might be a regimen story. Some of these products, you know, like they have to, you got to use it for six weeks, and in the meantime, it looks like your skin is peeling off, but then on the other end, all of a sudden, it looks better. And it's really complicated, actually. <laughs> and so we said, what if we leaned into this? you know, and said, we can, we can grow out of here and develop out our capabilities from here. And that's why, you know, we started there. We developed and, and built really into now, I mean, 70, 75% of our business is pharma. Uh, oh, wow. You know, so there's a huge uh-huh. amount of healthcare work there. Um, and the remainder is um, a lot of food and beverage, but typically it's going to be better for you type food and beverage. There is some stuff that we sort of you know, we take on because we like the brand and we like the client and those kinds of things. But a lot of it fits in that, like, better for you, um, where there's a wellness story, there's, a, there's some complicated story about why it's, you know, better for you and those kinds of things. Um, and that's kind of the majority of our current work is going to be pharma, over-the-counter health, food and beverage, and then there's some personal care, CPG. Um, and then we have, you know, some consumer tech and other stuff that we do. But, um, but that sort of, you know, was, the I guess, the turning point, as we said, Beauty is not a great industry anymore, uh, and we want to work in industries where they have complicated stories to tell, yeah. and you know, we'll work with us like strategic partners. Are there any uh, additional industries that you're aiming for as you know as time goes on? I mean, our next one will be um, technology in a, in a bigger way. Right now, we, we mm-hmm. do consumer tech, um, but if you think about you know the industries of complicated stories to tell, you know, uh, technology is certainly on that list. Um, and, and so that'll probably be our next kind of big sector. So, um, Paul, you've been there, what, almost, is it, what, seven and a half years, did you say? Six and a half? Uh, six and a half, yep. Yeah. 
And the agency has grown dramatically, hasn't it, over that uh, that time period? So you must be doing a lot of things right, my friend. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I think I think we're excited about it. You know, we we believe in what we're building here. Um, I do also believe that you know I'm not a fan of growth for growth's sake. I think you got to pick good growth, but um, that growth um, kind of without it, people will stagnate. You know, and our job as leaders, I think, is to bring those opportunities to people, uh, is to bring them opportunities to individually to grow. And um, so those things are pretty closely linked, I guess. So, Paul, obviously you are a leader in the industry. You are a top manager. How would you characterize the way you manage? What did you learn at, uh, say, Real Chemistry, where you showed up there at a very young, tender age? And uh, how are you able to translate it into what you call your philosophy of management? Good question. I mean, if I'm being transparent, which I can't help but be, or um, I think from a management perspective, I probably observed more about what not to do in my those years mm-hmm. um, at Real uh-huh. Chemistry, um, and since coming to Lippy Taylor, I think adopted a different style. Um, largely just because the the growth trajectory was so chaotic, you know, in my time at Real Chemistry, that people weren't able to really invest a lot of time in management. It was sink or swim, and if you could swim, then there was endless opportunity. But um, so since then, you know, I think I learned a lot from Maureen um, and from other you know leaders that we've worked with here in the company, and from coaching, you know, that I've gotten myself and that we've gotten for others in the company. Um, you know, I would characterize my leadership style as being very clear and firm on the vision, like really no outsourcing on the vision. So I will go and I'll meet with clients and I'll meet with leaders within the company at all levels and I'll get input from them and I'll hear what they think. But when it comes to defining what kind of a company are we building, what is the vision for that, what does it look like at the end of the road, I don't outsource that. I develop it myself, and I'm very clear. I communicate it a lot, and I'm very firm about not letting other people sort of reinterpret it into like, oh, well, what the vision means for our team is different than what the vision means for that team. Like, I'm very firm about that. Then the how we get there is completely flexible, Um, you know, and largely outsourced to the rest of the leadership team. It's saying, all right, we're all on the same page about where we're going, now, you guys tell me how you want to get there. And, um, you know, from a day-to-day management perspective with that, some people will be in periods where they need a lot of sort of like one-on-one time with me to work through things. Some people will be in periods where they don't need to hear from me for weeks. And that's fine. You know, like they, they feel like they're in the right place. They know what they're doing. They're going with it. And I'm like, call me when you need me. Um, so it, it's just really, I think a lot of it comes down to having that spidey sense, if you will, about when somebody needs you, when they don't need you. Um, and also having a little bit of the spidey sense about when does somebody need a little bit of a push, um, either a positive push or a, like, Hey, like snap out of it push. Um, and when do they need you to, to rein them in a little bit? Cause you can also have you know, times where people who are motivated and ambitious and capable people are sprinting so fast that you can see they're going to run off the cliff and you got to kind of pull them back a little bit and just say, Hey, we don't have to get there this week. It's okay. Um, so, you know, I don't know, having a little bit of that 
spidey sense about when you're needed and when you're not, I guess. Yeah. Paul, a lot of the PR masters that I have had the pleasure and opportunity to to chat with over the past four years uh, have told me that they got into public relations purely by accident, that it wasn't planned or anything like that. So I'd like to start uh, with your college career. Tell me what you majored in and subsequently how you got into public relations. I mean, was it a clear choice? Is is something you always wanted to do while, you know, when you were a kid? Other kids wanted to be, you know, pilots and firemen. But uh, I have a feeling you didn't say, I want to be a public relations executive. Tell me how you got started in that. So if I'm being honest, Art, I'm still coming around to the idea that I might now be a public relations executive. Um, <laughs> if PR Week keeps writing stuff about us and, you know, or, or, or sometimes me, then I guess at some point it becomes true. But I don't really identify with it. Um <laughs> And part of it's probably because of the origin story, as you've alluded to. I mean, I, I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, in Des Moines, you know, if you're successful, you work at the car dealership, basically. You know, and otherwise, you're a doctor or a lawyer. That's it. There, you know, no, even <laughs> advertising didn't exist there, let alone public relations. Um, I uh, graduated from WashU in St. Louis. My, my um, actual degree was in political science with a minor in Chinese. Um, I had planned to become a lawyer. Um, I, I moved out to California because I was, I was planning to go to law school at UCLA, uh, but I wanted to spend a year getting in-state residency for the tuition difference. And so, I, you know, it took a year to go work. Um, in that time, all my friends in law school were like, don't do it. This is a terrible idea. <laughs> Um, you know, and meanwhile, I had started working at a company called MarketWire that doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, with, with a competitor to PR Newswire and BusinessWire at the time. Um, and we were selling press release distribution, and our differentiator was that we had HTML distribution when the others didn't. Um, I was kind of right at the cusp of that generation where I understood HTML and had actually in college um, had, had built a website from scratch, like actually – Again, people today won't understand this stuff, but you used to have to go into a word editor like Notepad and actually type all of the HTML code in. Now you can just, you know, go to Squarespace or wherever. But, you know, you had to actually type it all in to build a website. And um, so I had done that in college and taught myself to write code. And it was a, it was a website that was relatively successful. It had probably 10,000 people a month coming to it at one point. And... I graduated and I, I like shut the website down and, you know, like moved on. And um, the head of marketing at MarketWire found out I had that background. And so she found me and said, hey, you, you must understand search engine optimization. And I was like, sure, I don't think to do about that. And she's like, all right, work with me on this. And so we developed an SEO product and we started talking at conferences. You know, actually, the real story is she would volunteer to speak at conferences about SEO, and then after that, shortly later, social media. Her name is Paulina Milana, and she would go, and as the head of marketing, she would say, I'll, I'll come speak on this SEO and social media, but she didn't know anything about it. So then the day before, she would call in sick and send me in her place. <laughs> and it's happened you know, several times to the point where then I had a little bit of a name for myself, and people started calling me directly to come speak about SEO and then social media. And um, after the talks, I would have clients come up to me on the client side, like I think PetSmart, MGM Mirage, Red Bull, 
um, you know, these are major companies, Virgin Megastore, you know, they were all trying to figure this out. So they were at these conferences and like the head of marketing from uh, Virgin Megastore approaches me after a talk and asks if I'll consult for her on social media. I'm like, okay, I'm 23 or 24 years old. I'm like, this sounds awesome. <laughs> I think she asked me how much I charged in the first project art. I said, I had no idea what to say. I didn't even think about billing by the hour. I just kind of wanted to do it. So I was like, uh, how about a thousand dollars? You know, she was like, okay, kid. Like, um, anyway, so, you know, like, look, all that experience then led to me getting hired by an agency to be their head of social media in 2006, I think. Um, you know, which is kind of the earliest you could have that job. And then social media continued to grow and become a thing. And, um, you know, Jim Weiss hired me as his e-media director. So I was kind of the first person he hired that was not a PR person. Um, and then, you know, fast forward after I left Real Chemistry, you know, my time there was all, again, I wouldn't consider it having been PR. I mean, I was running a ton of analytics projects, a lot of digital marketing projects, a lot of digital transformation, those kinds of things. Still wouldn't have considered it to be PR. And then when I came to Lippy Taylor, I knew, you know, obviously this is a PR firm. And it was at a moment where um, the presidential election just happened in 2016. And as a digital guy, all my search results and all my social feeds are full of news articles. And yet all the PR firms have scrubbed PR from their websites. And I had this sort of aha moment of, you know, there's nobody wants to be in PR anymore. They've all outsourced their media relations capabilities. Here's this diamond in the rough. Lippy Taylor is extraordinary at earned media. And I think earned media is going to be the sort of rare and valuable piece of the marketing mix in this next cycle. And um, so that was why, that's how I ended up here. Wow. <laughs> so you're one of the, the many who got into it purely accidentally, <laughs> as I did, and, and, and so sure many I'm others. I'm still not sure if I'm into it or not, Art. <laughs> <laughs> but, but here we are. Here we are. I want to talk about for a moment the uh, quality of life at Lippy Taylor. I know that Maureen has always tried to foster a totally uh, collegial atmosphere. How would you describe the quality of life, uh, or putting it another way, why would somebody want to work at Lippy Taylor? Yeah, I, I do think that uh, quality of life is a big focus for us. I think it's a big differentiator for our people. Um, I think that there's a there's a couple different ways to think about this, right? Work-life balance, et cetera. I don't think that that's a constant throughout anybody's life their need or appetite for, you know, how that balance shakes out. I think there's periods of time where you want your career to be supercharged and you want it to be primary in your life. And then there's points where you don't want to do that. You want it to play a supporting role in your life. And as a company, we've worked really hard to just embrace the idea of, we just, I call it ebbing and flowing with people. And, so that's why we've had people who've been here for 20 years um, where their life has changed dramatically over the course of that 20 years. And in some cases, we feed them every career opportunity possible, and they're sprinting as fast as they can professionally. And in other cases, they're at a life stage or just a moment where they're like, I need something different. And we encourage that as an open dialogue. So we've had some people, it's been as um, it was noteworthy of saying, like, I want to just work three days a week for a while. 
you know, or I want to take three months off and come back, you know, or, um, you know, just like, I, I need to have my hours look totally different now that I'm at this life stage, like all those kinds of things and being really flexible with them when it comes to those um, kinds of decisions and also really encouraging those conversations among people so that it's never stigmatized or something they have to worry about. Um, but even beyond that, I think if you think about just sort of the general guardrails of the company, I will say every time we hire somebody from a different agency, they come in and they're, they're surprised, you know, like, for the most part, unless somebody is in a moment where they're saying, I want to really sprint professionally, for the most part, it's like, you know, the place is closing down at a reasonable hour. Everybody is having dinner at home with their family and, you know, or, or out with friends or however they're doing it. Um, you know, and we're not one of those places where you're expected to be on at 10 o'clock at night. It's just, I, I don't think it's necessary. I think, um, you know, for me, coming up in the industry, it was sort of um, positioned to me that uh, there was a difference between client side and agency. Agency was, you know, stimulating, it was intellectual, it was fast, it was, it was, everything was exciting, but you had to sacrifice your balance for that. You had to put everything into the company, essentially, whereas client side was slow and boring and nothing ever got done, but you could be a great father. And I just don't think that that dichotomy needs to exist. I think you can have a middle ground. And so we've worked really hard to develop that middle ground. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, on another subject, Paul, there's a, a term that's been used quite a bit uh, currently in the world of public relations as well as throughout the world of, of marketing. Artificial intelligence. What's your view of artificial intelligence and how do you feel it can be used and what do you see its future at Lippy Taylor? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say that um, I've been a big believer in very similar technologies since I entered the industry. I and mean, the things we've been doing in analytics, data science, natural language processing, it's very, very similar, right? Machine learning was a big part of what we were doing with analytics a decade ago. Um, generative AI is, of course, the thing that people are talking about most right now. Um, you know, I like to I sort of adopt our chief creative officer, Craig Elamilia, has for many years been talking about um, instead of artificial intelligence, augmented intelligence. And I really like that as a, as a sort of reframing of it, because I think that AI is here to make us all smarter and faster and better. And it's just like what we would do with analytics where we use machine learning and said, you know what, instead of having analysts spend 100 hours reading a bunch of posts and then hand coding them, what if we just taught this machine how to do 80% of the work? And nobody was upset about that work being done by the machine because it wasn't stimulating work. It wasn't the kind of work they wanted to be doing anyway. So, you know, I think that we're going to see that, uh, you know, generative AI will become augmented, you know, will augment all of our intelligence and capabilities over the coming years, um, much of the same way as, you know, NLP augmented analytics, just like Photoshop augmented um, design. Um, I just think this is going to be the next version of, of helping us be smarter faster. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I guess everybody's talking about it. On another subject, Paul, I want to know a little bit more about you uh, in terms of your spare time. Should you have any spare time running a successful organization like Lippy Taylor? What do you do in your spare time? 
Well, Art, I, I wouldn't be being very true to what I just said about work-life balance at Lippy Taylor if I didn't have spare time. So, um, <laughs> well, I'd say, I mean, you know, most of my spare time is focused on my family right now. I have two daughters. They're four and a half and seven right now. Okay. Um, wow. And my wife. And, you know, we we have a lot of, uh, you know, we do a lot together and, you know, we go on trips and we do a lot, you know, whether it's their soccer games or lacrosse games or those kinds of things or just family movie nights, et cetera. Um, outside of that, I'm a avid soccer fan. Um, Arsenal's my team. I'm a big soccer fan. I used to be a big soccer player. And I just, uh, you know, um, if I play soccer these days, I hurt for three days afterwards. So I usually don't do that as much. But, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, I'm in a life stage where having young kids, kids you know, you can kind of, you can almost like count the weekends until you're not going to get this amount of time with them. So, you know, I spend a lot of my time there and then, um, you know, out with friends and I uh, do some, some other things. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a bad weekend golfer and, you know, those kinds of things. And um, I will say, and this sort of relates to the comments about, you know, work-life balance. One of the, the mandates that I've instituted here is that the whole leadership team is mandated to visibly take vacation two or three times a year. And what that means is because we have flex time off, so anybody can take off whenever they want, the, you know, the, the downside of that is oftentimes people feel pressure not to take their time off. And so we model the behavior, and I model the behavior. I just got back from a week in Napa Valley with my wife and her brother, and her brother got engaged while we were there. It was a beautiful week. Um, and, you know, like I'm texting everybody about it, and I'm talking about Napa, and like, you know, like really sort of normalizing that we're on vacation where I'm not working while I'm on vacation and you should do it too. So which wine did you like the best in Napa Valley? <laughs> oh, geez. You know, it really, it's hard to pick one. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to have to go with Quintessa because that's where my brother-in-law got engaged. Um, so I'll go with Quintessa. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just a couple more questions, Paul, and, and uh, we'll wrap up. And this has been great. Who are your heroes and mentors? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, heroes, you know, I mean, look, for my whole life, and my dad has probably been my hero, um, he's a very different style of hero than I think when people say, you know, their dad is their hero, they tend to envision a, maybe a more traditional, you know, sort of view of masculinity when they say that. I mean, my dad is um, soft-spoken, extremely um, intellectual and thoughtful, um, um, you know, relatively sort of introverted, um, but has just, you know, was always there, was always at every sort of, you know, event and game that I had and um, managed to build an incredible career out of really nothing, you know, start, starting from, I mean, quite literally nothing in Kansas um, to where he ran um, an R&D program with 3,000 PhDs working for him around the world, you know, and um, I was always very inspired by him and by the sort of understated way in which he was able to do it. So, um, yeah, I, I would say my dad. Um, I'd also say, by the way, he is who really sort of taught me at an early age the value of inclusivity and, and diversity in your social circle and, you know, et cetera. Um, there's one really funny story from it was like Thanksgiving when I was probably like 10 years old, and we were having a new family over for family Thanksgiving. And he told me all kinds of things about this guy who was coming over. He told me that he had in, invented some 
you know, type of uh, new crop. He told me he grew up with 17 siblings. He told me he was a soccer player. He told me all these things about the guy. Um, and we're in Des Moines, Iowa, which is not a very diverse part of the country, especially at that point. And the guy shows up, and he's from Morocco, and he brought couscous to our Thanksgiving dinner. And I was like, what is this strange thing, which was delicious? It just, it just sort of exemplifies how, you know, like that wasn't, that wasn't even a meaningful part. You know, the fact that English was his second language wasn't even something that my dad would have thought of to describe him, you know? Um, anyway, so my dad's always been a hero. Um, you know, mentors, I think it's something that kind of comes and goes. Like I've had some, some mentors who were clients, you know, over time. And I don't know if they even knew that, that, you know, I was a mentee, so to speak. Um, you know, there's a period, some of the people that, you know, we've talked about already on this call were, were mentors at different times. Maureen has been a mentor. Um, but I think it just kind of, you know, it ebbs and flows. And there's not been sort of one, you know, um, you know there's not like one person that I would say I go to these days. Um, it's more like the the village of voices around the, the PR industry, you know, that I, that I have breakfast with or, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. I have a final question, Paul. You know, you're a relatively young guy, and you've obviously been very successful in your career. You are part of a renowned agency. I think most people in the world of public relations know the name Lippy Taylor, and obviously you are now identified uh, with its leadership. Where do you see Paul Dyer in the years ahead, given the fact that you have a very long career ahead of you? Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, it's you know what I got to tell you, Art. I'm not really a retirement type of type of guy, so I'm probably going to keep at it. Yeah, I don't I don't really know. Um, I don't have a, like a clear answer to that. I can tell you over the next you know several years, we're going to continue building. You know, the company we're building. You're actually going to see some some new branding, some new expansion. We're we're going to Europe. We're building new capabilities. We're going to be doing some acquisitions. There's all kinds of great stuff that's on the the near term uh, horizon. And at some point, you know, this will run its course and somebody, it'll be time for somebody else to take over, you know, and, and be in charge of it. And um, at that point, who knows, maybe I'll do it again, the same kind of thing, just, you know, reconsidering where the industry's at at that point, which one no doubt have, has evolved and changed. And can I, can I find a unique angle at that point again, sort of the way, you know, I did with social media, real chemistry and sort of the return of earned media at Libby Taylor, like we'll see where the industry's at at that point. Um, you know, or is it maybe just a time to consult, step back and help others? I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I haven't put that much thought into it. I like to kind of look maybe just a little bit out of, uh, along the horizon instead of thinking too far down the road. Well, Paul, there's one thing you can do uh, in addition to what you just described, and that is you can improve your golf game. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I could definitely improve my golf game. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I don't have that much appetite for, you know, for, for leisurely activities, which I would consider golf, but, um, yeah, we'll see. Paul Dyer, on behalf of the PR Masters podcast listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. You've given us a great deal to think about, uh, some words of wisdom. You've uh, talked about what obviously is one of the finest public relations firms in the world, Lippy Taylor. And I have always been one of the agency's biggest fans. And as you know, I'm a big fan of yours as well. So thanks very much for being with us today, Paul. Well, thank you for having me, Art. Um, I really appreciate your, your interest and your support. And that's it for today, folks. Thanks for joining us. 
And thank you, Faye Shapiro, publisher and editor of Compro, for your support and sponsorship of these podcasts, which are now in their fourth year. This is Art Stevens, your host, signing off. So until next time, be well, everybody. Mm-hmm.